Hello and welcome to my podcast, Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold, and this is episode 20, Beginning of the End. I want to mention first and remind everyone, if, if you have listened to my previous couple of episodes, that I will begin the second season of my podcast as soon as this season ends. This episode you are listening to is second to the end. Only one more episode after this one. Then I'll begin the second season, and it's going to be about the Meiji Restoration, particularly not only about the Meiji Restoration, but how it compares to the restoration efforts that were ongoing in China during the same period of time. I think it's quite interesting, and I will answer the question, why did Japan respond so much better to Western intervention than did the Qing Dynasty and China? Okay, the last episode, I talked about the Boxer Rebellion. I also talked about the issues with Japan, Korea, and the Triple Intervention, and how all of these threatened the Qing Dynasty and threatened to divide up the empire. In this episode, this would be the last attempt by the Qing Dynasty to reform China and stave off revolution that would end the dynasty. I will talk about the Russian-Japanese war that took place in Manchuria and resulted in the loss of Manchuria from the Chinese. I'll also mention and talk about the serious efforts and movements that were afoot both in China and outside of China to replace the Qing dynasty. I realize my episode title, Beginning of the End, is a bit misleading. Good arguments could be made that the beginning of the end of the Qing Dynasty came slowly and direct everyone's attention to the Boxer Rebellion, where the end was certainly in sight then. But you could also argue that the end of the dynasty began after the tumultuous mid-19th century, the foreign interventions, the opium abuse, the opium wars, the Taiping Rebellion, the Neon Rebellion, probably did the Qing Dynasty, Qing Empire, more harm for which it would never recover, and it did not. It can even be reasonably argued that the fix was in, so to speak, or the beginning of the end was so in, so to speak, after the great emperor Qianlong died. For sure, after Qianlong, the Qing dynasty would never have a dynamic and dominating emperor again. But to the dynasty's credit, it continued to survive for at least a few more years. After 1902, the Boxer Rebellion fiasco had ended 
and the imperial family returned to Peking. Remember, they had fled Peking during the Boxer Rebellion. Soon upon returning, the emperor, under the direction of Sishi, the empress dowager, issued an edict to begin making large, big government political reforms. Beyond this, the emperor lived in virtual isolation with his books. It is still debated today if Sishi was totally sincere about these reforms or, as always, she just wanted to preserve her power. Some of the reforms adopted resembled some of the reforms the Meiji government in Japan had made. Other reforms were based on Western teachings. Some of the reforms were more radical than what Guangxu, the emperor, had proposed with the 100 days of reform. And there were some reforms made. For instance, the ancient practice of foot-binding was once and for all outlawed. Opium smoking was banned. Around 1905, the Qing dynasty abolished their long-practiced exam system that had previously limited political power to only the elites. They also made a genuine attempt to decentralize power a little, creating elected assemblies at the local province level. Another set of reforms focused on rebuilding the armed forces. This included equipping the forces with the latest in Western armaments. However, as we will learn, all of this was too late and too little to save the empire. Much of these reforms were poorly implemented and poorly executed. And events now were moving very, very fast in China. After the Boxer Rebellion, many Chinese began to seriously think about revolution. Young students, young Chinese students in exile, particularly in Japan, began to openly discuss revolution, and they were encouraged by the Japanese government. Many Chinese, mostly young, looked up to and admired the Japanese. After all, the Japanese, or the Meiji Japanese government, had done something that the Chinese Qing dynasty had not done, and that is, the Japanese seemed to have escaped backwardness and modernized and took in and utilized Western ideas and adjusted their society accordingly without becoming westernized, so to speak. And the Japanese learned to confront the Western powers on equal terms. However, there were also other nations that were influencing these young Chinese, Chinese, not just the Japanese. Meanwhile, Russia was still pressing its Manchuria gains. It occupied Shenyang, China, on October 1st, 1900. Tensions over Manchuria grew, 
not just within China, of course, but internationally too. One gets the feeling that however the Manchuria issue works out, it's not going to be in China's favor. All of the Russian activity in Manchuria led to the Japanese declaring war against Russia in 1904. This would be a war that was fought almost entirely in China. Think about that for a moment. A war in Manchuria, the ancestral territory of the Manchus and the Qing Dynasty, and the Qing Dynasty nor China would have no direct involvement. That is just incredible. In that war between Japan and Russia, Japan shocked the world when it defeated Russia. Easily. By 1906, Japan had taken Port Arthur, or what is now modern-day Dalian, which is on the southern tip of Liaoning province in China. They took this from the Russians, part of their war booty, and completely humiliating the Russian navy in the process. And the army, too, for that matter. Japan had clearly made its presence known in Asia and to the world. The Japanese would allow, however, the Chinese to continue the administration of Manchuria, at least for then, at that point. Meanwhile, Talk of revolution against the Qing dynasty continued and discussed both in and out of China. One of, the, one of this era's pivotal figures, a very important figure, was a man by the name, his Chinese name, Sun Yixian, or also known as Sun Yat-sen. His importance to this era deserves discussion. Now, before I dive into this pre-revolution and revolution era, let me say this. It's complicated. There are lots of moving parts. There's also many excellent materials that have been written explaining this era very well and all from different angles and viewpoints. I can only hope to give my listeners a glancing summary of these events, but hopefully enough you'll get a basic understanding of what's going on. The revolution talk that I'm talking about here now would eventually sink the Qing dynasty. It was a slow-moving freight train. Sometime in the mid-1890s is where these efforts began in earnest. This discussion of drastic revolution to overthrow and replace the Qing dynasty. This topic now really came into view. 
while I previously discussed the Emperor Guangxu's 100 Days of Reform in 1898, and that none of them were ever implemented. They did have, however, the auspicious effect of creating a groundswell of interest, discussion, and thought among many of the revolutionaries of that time, including Sun Yat-sen. The reforms that were proposed by the emperor did crack open serious discussion of the ideas that he proposed. Sun Yat-sen would become a westernized Chinese who spoke three languages, Mandarin, Japanese, and English. He became a medical doctor, and it's not uncommon to see him referred to as Dr. Sun Yat-sen. He lived most of his adult life in Hong Kong, Shanghai, Japan, and the United States. His revolutionary visions became focused during the Sino-Japanese War. After his own attempt of an uprising in the late 1890s, he fled China and went to Japan. After the Russian-Japanese War, things turned decidedly in favor in China for revolution. Dr. Sun's revolutionary alliance began to shape, take shape, and form, and grow. It adopted the mantra, expel the Manchus, restore Chinese rule, establish a republic, and equalize land rights. Support for the alliance poured in. It was headquartered in Tokyo. The alliance drew most of its support from students and Chinese businessmen living outside of China. In many ways, the modern transformations of China and Japan were related. Both could not avoid the West with the advent of fast steamships. China's involvement with the West preceded Japan by about a decade or so. The Japanese learned the hard lessons from the Chinese experience. It was almost natural that Japan would become the chief incubator of Chinese revolution. And these revolutionaries believed the chaos and foreign presence in China rested firmly at the Manchus' feet. After all, many argued, the Manchus themselves were but foreign occupiers of China. The perspective began to shift away from the foreigners that were the cause and woes of the late Qing dynasty to it was the Manchus that let it happen. They were the reason why the Qing dynasty suffered for so many long years, late in its empire. The period from 1906 to 1908 is filled with many uprisings 
all of them relatively small, and all of them failed. What was missing was the grassroot component. The Emperor Guangxu spent this time in the early 20th century, according, remember, of course, remember, he was in virtual isolation, imprisoned by the Emperor's Dowager, planning to implement his reforms, but thought at best that he should wait for the old, frail Empress Dowager to die. But the Emperor Guangxu never got the chance he died at the age of 37 on November 14th, 1908. As I spoke about in a previous episode, it has been established that he was poisoned to death with arsenic. His funeral would be the last under the Qing dynasty. And another one of those strange historical idiosyncrasies, Sishi, the famous Empress Dowager, died the very next day. She was 72 at the time she died. There were rumors that she'd been murdered, that she'd been stabbed. But probably it was a natural death as she had been sick for some time. In her final act before she died, she decreed that her two-year-old nephew would be the next emperor. So she left this earth at this tumultuous time and she put into the hands of a two-year-old boy and his father would be his regent who had completely no administration, no administrative experience, and he lacked any political experience, into their hands, the fate of China would now rest. Legendary revolutionary leader, Dr. Sun Yat-sen, praised Guangxu, believing him to be a decent emperor, and that had his proposed reforms gone through and implemented correctly. And had he lived, this would have been good for China. The last thing I'll say about the Empress Dowager is that a few years after her death, her tomb was robbed and her body desecrated and left exposed. By 1908, the Qing dynasty regime had survived over a century of rebellions and foreign pressure. So the uprisings from 1895, the mid-1890s, to 1908 hardly seemed significant. The Manchus were easily able to suppress them and did so quickly. But that would suddenly change, as I will talk about in the next and final episode of this podcast series. In the next episode, it will be the last of this series. We'll learn about the ascension 
and abdication of the last emperor. I'll also talk about the Xinhai Revolution that precipitated, that caused the abdication and was the final act in this long, long play. Thank you. It has been my pleasure.